Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Agile Uprising Mystery Theater. I'm joined to get today with a, a panel show. The topic is Agile and Earned Value Management. More on what that means in a minute. But at least we got you to click play. We'll see if we can get you to uh, stay through to the uh, closing credits. So I want to uh, invite my guests to introduce themselves and share uh, their most reliable superpower. Let's go in alphabetical order by first name. Ben, you're up. I thought Andy would go first. Oh, I'm the host. I'll go last. <laughs> Three before me. Give me a right? chance to think. What's your What's your most reliable superpower, Ben? Uh, I think it is flexibility. I think um, I've done enough of these things to know that nothing I did before is going to work where I am now. And uh, that the people I'm working with are going to have different levels of comfort and resistance uh, and acceptance to what we're doing. So I've, I've pretty well learned to, to be flexible and try to meet the folks where they are and then eventually bend them to my will. Well, like Ben, my powers can be used for good or evil. Um, I would say I'm I'm the enabler, <laughs> which often comes in the form of trying to get people to drink with me, but can also be used for encouraging them to try new things <laughs> or be open to new new approaches and new ways of thinking about how we work. Pratik. Uh, mine is that my best ideas come to me after the conversation is over. Mm. So, you know, we'll have a conversation probably like this one. And then at night I'll go, oh my God, I should have said that. That is my superpower. Yes. <laughs> Can it be used for evil? Everything. Colleen, you know me. Everything I do is used <laughs> for evil. Fair. Uh, I'll demonstrate my superpower. the ability to withstand awkward silence. <laughs> hey, Ben, not too long ago, you and I were having a let's catch up call. Um, we're scheduling these. These are planned serendipity. And whatever comes up, comes up. And uh, one of the topics that came up was? Uh, the confluence, the high pressure, low pressure, creating a tornado of trying to instill agility in a uh, hardware project, as it turns out, where we're trying to instill agility, but at the same time, there's an expectation of earned value reporting out the other end of the, of the pipe. Yeah, and, and through the powers of serendipity, I was in the middle of a software project uh, that had hardware components where EVM, earned value management, um, was a key component and uh, sort of scratched my head to learn more about it because it was new to me. Uh, so we threw it out there on various channels, uh, Discord server, Slack, and a few other people raised their hand. We we had one secret weapon. Um, he, he was deeply embedded in government projects and DOD and seemed to know quite a bit. Um, but he's been drawn off to witness protection and was able to join us today because he would have revealed all the secrets behind successful EVM. 
So I'm hoping that our conversation is takes three parts. Part one is what the heck is EVM anyway? For all of our listeners, never heard of it. Um, can Agile exist with EVM or is it like oil and water? And um, what's the great emulsifier if you have to do Agile and EVM? Could it be probability? So as no podcast host plan ever survives contact beyond the panelists, who knows where we'll end up. So I wanted to see who knows what. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a student on this EVM stuff, uh, by no means a scholar. I've learned a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Anybody want to take a crack at explaining what the heck EVM actually is? Well, so EVM is what got me very, very interested in Agile because of uh, its contraposition to EVM. EVM, earned value management, tends to be uh, a method of trying to aggregate, get a snapshot of where you are in the midst of a project. Uh, are you on schedule? Are you off schedule? What do you expect to have to spend by the end? How much are you spending now? But the thing that got me, and this came from, it was a, the perfect book for a PMP Gantt head, was uh, Sliger and Broderick's Software Project Manager's Bridge to Agility, where they took the knowledge areas in the PMBOK and related them to different elements of agility. And what was in there was something I didn't realize about it. I, I mean, this I was a brand, a, a newbie there, was that we're not in the business of providing work we're in the business of providing value and you don't get value until the work that compi comprises that value is released and the whole thing of earned value is what percentage of the value have we delivered and it was clear if anywhere during there you haven't gotten to the end and you stopped you've delivered zero value and it was that kind of light bulb that went on that made me realize that we should be looking at a method where you're more interested in work getting done, work getting out the door than just busy work. And you don't worry about uh, critical paths, but you're worried about the critical releases and what you need to do. Hmm. Other thoughts? No, shaking their heads. All right. Oh, no, we were just trying to test your, your superpower. Yeah, it's, it's weak. <laughs> Um, for, for for me, uh, the, the the way the way uh, I, I am completely new to this. I, 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 when 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 Andy mentioned it, I started reading into it, and it's it's. Uh, I, I think I think Ben already solved it. I think that's that, that we just do that. We just yeah, yeah, done. We just as we deliver value, we say we we earn the money. That makes sense to me. It's <laughs> the end of the show. Thanks for showing up to our <laughs> TED talk. Um, I, I did a little research and the earned value management came out in the 60s, right? The U.S. government wanted a way to manage these big projects and it, it became institutionalized um, in the government. It was expanded to the Department of Defense. It then was adapted by NASA and it became uh, a policy of any thing that the government was spending $20 million more, had to use what they called the earned value method. And its purpose was to provide accurate forecasts of project performance, both problems and success, 
And Ben, you talked about schedule and cost. And there are rules galore and um, 32 different guidelines and methodologies. And my head was just starting to spin. Like, how could anybody do this um, successfully? Um, it was confusing. Um, Pembach picked it up. Anybody, any Pembach fans here? So in, in the late 80s, they built, um, they included it. And then they started to add stuff about um, <laughs> trying to get into a more useful way of indicators like where have you been, where are you going, um, how are we going to get there. The things that I see, and I'm curious, um, as you read into it, how can this possibly work in an environment? So, so, so much of the EVMs is set up to require full project definition upfront, full scope, full budget, uh, when you know the least. And as we all know, as agilists, um, that's a, that's waiting heavily on the right side of the, the value pairs, right? You have a plan and you're going to be judged on how you stick to it. Um, there's lots of documentation, there's lots of contracts and there's lots of planning. Um, how do we mesh that with agile ways of working is what I'm curious about. Well, I think Ben said something interesting there too, that, that in from this EVM perspective, nothing is counted as done or valuable until it's all done or valuable. So I think the first question is, how do you make those batch sizes smaller, but still valuable? Um, and I know, I think in your, in your guide that you shared, Andy, around the 32 guidelines, the first thing is work breakdown structure. And that feels like probably the first intersection where we start to think about agile practices and I'll still critique critiques line. I have it written on a sticky somewhere on this desk, but how do we find out we're doing the wrong thing faster? And so if we think about it from that perspective of looking at our batch sizes as those small tests, those small bets, those small experiments, um, how do we get something out quicker? The, I think the first step is how you're breaking up that work. And so looking at your work breakdown structure to say, what's the smallest amount of smallest amount of work we can do to deliver some value and find out if we're on the right track. Um, that feels like where um, we start to chip away at the, you know, if we have to do all this upfront discovery, how do we do less? We make the scope smaller. But even with doing that, if earned value is looking at percentages complete and expected, you know, uh, cost at completion, that has absolutely nothing to do with doing the right stuff. Right. right. It's it's speed versus velocity. Right. Speed is how fast you're going. Velocity is speed and direction. And and earn value can give you a good idea of have you done the amount of work that you would have expected to be done by now. But it has absolutely no reference to are you doing the right work. And, and, and just to, to kind of double down and step back. <laughs> it's uh, what we're really talking about. When I read through this, when I read through the, the all the notes that Andy put together and when I heard about the stuff, what we're really trying to do is risk manage. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is I am a contractor taking on a $20 million contract uh, from the person who's paying me, the government usually, uh, they need to manage risk of 
hey, I'm going to give you 20 million up front and you're going to run away with it and not give me anything. And meanwhile, I have to manage risk of, I don't want to wait till all the way to the end to get that 20 million and invest all this money. And essentially, we are trying to manage that risk. I think this is where it can potentially work really well with Agile concepts because for me, Agile concepts, just as Ben was saying and just as Colleen was saying, are all about managing risk, making sure we are delivering the right kind of value. Well, these both these things are trying to manage risk. It's just a question of how do we frame that risk. That's that's that would be an interesting way of framing it when we're talking about mixing agility in with earned value, because that puts an envelope around around the why. I mean, a big element of earned value is percent complete, right? That's something that always pops up, and and my question is. Why do you care, right? I, I'm looking at, I mean, this comes from listening to Colleen enough that it finally sunk in. You care about when am I getting what and with what level of confidence? Why do you care what happened before, you know, other than maybe to use as trending to help you to help you do that? But what possible benefit do you have from understanding percent complete as opposed to how do we get to where we're going? So I like Deke's idea of framing that as risk risk mitigation yeah i think it's a it, it's a great angle to look at because in the in the traditional evm you've got here's the project here's the scope we're 80 percent complete we there's there's no value in the actual calculations it's pure schedule and cost calculation right and like many planned projects you get to 80 percent and you start integrating and you find out well nothing really works um, well, I mean, there's even that factor of how do you know it's 80%. I mean, I was a developer who had those kind of metrics. And if I had a test that was scheduled for three weeks and I was a week in, I reported 33% done. No question. Zero, zero question. That's what I was going to say. But there was nothing. There was no, there, there, There's an interesting element in EVM called uh, QBD, qu uh, quantifiable background data. Oh, who's ever listening to this who knows EVM is going to. But but it, it's the data that you use as the basis for the numbers that you have. So they they understand that there has to be something behind that. But there there was um, a study that was done in the around 2018. So the, the they were looking at EVM and they were tasked with: uh, Do we keep it? Do we iterate on it? Or do we throw it away? Uh, section 809 panel said, um, can we transform the defense acquisition system to meet the threats and demands of the 21st century using uh, EVM, which was developed in the 60s? Uh, their recommendation, which came out in January 2018, was eliminate earned value management for software programs using agile methods. Like, get rid of it. It's not well suited to as a measurement tool in an agile environment, which is dynamic by design. Coexistence of agile and EVM requires tailored approach, costly, time consuming, et cetera, et cetera. So their recommendation was toss it. But clearly, um, <laughs> EVMs, the, the reports of EVM's demise are greatly exaggerated, right? Uh, the US government, the DOD, NASA, aerospace, um, all are sticking with it. So shortly after that, 
there was an emergence of Agile plus EVM methodologies. So they merged it all. And uh, it was an adaptation that required some input parameters. Um, and one of the key points was everything was estimated in our favorite unitless measure, story points. And I started to look at that and, and scratch my head, like, how is this actually helping the problem? And so much of the current literature about Agile plus EVM says, yes, we can do it. Just use story points or maybe team days or any other consistent estimate of size. And we all know we're horrible at that. So having listened to Dan and Colleen talk enough on our project, we're using story points. Every story is five points. Uh, we actually put automation in. So when you create a story, it's five points. So yes, we have the points. We're using points like you want us to use it. Yes. But boy, I can do an issue count if I divide by five. So that's, we have our QBD. You wanted story points. Look, look here we are. Here's how many we said we were going to do. Here's how many we did. How do you correlate that to budget? Oh, I, because I, cost is a huge factor of EVM, right? It's schedule and cost and quality. And, and some of these agile methods all come into it. Fortunately, added in the human element, but so much of it is focused on the, the classic iron triangle. So how are you getting to budget in that scenario, Ben? I'm assuming, so I, I view EVM from, from working in an agile way to provide EVM as, as an API, which is basically, let's do what we wanna do, which is right. And what do we need to do in that, that transport layer to get the numbers that make EVM work, okay? And on the other side, the budget lives completely outside of anything we're doing in agility. So they're keeping their run rates. They're keeping what their budget is. Uh, if we're giving them a way to do that EVM kind of percent complete or estimates of completion or that kind of stuff, then they can do that math outside of any kind of agile work that we're doing to compare the things that EVM are looking for. I mean, you're looking at, again, it's forward looking. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to stop for a sec because I'm going to say the same thing. It, we should be concerned about forward looking. How much are we going to spend at the end? Do we have an idea of when it's going to end? What are we going to have by when? That kind of stuff. Well, and I think it's interesting. I've got a client I've been working with who's who's taking taking this right and trying to figure out cost per story point, and they're doing it on a, a program or portfolio level to say for each portfolio, what does one story point cost, which is terrifying to me in so many levels, because first of all, it's putting a lot of faith in that story point estimate up front, um, especially when there's a lot of already bad patterns and bad behaviors around how the team at the team level, like what is happening, right? So closing stories, taking partial story points for things, um, moving, you know, cutting things in half and saying, oh, well, those story points are going to be in the next sprint. And now you're associating dollars to that from a budgeting perspective. But um, I feel like it's also feels a little bit like the snake eating its tail where we're, we're taking the EVM process, trying to jam story points into it now, figuring out cost per story point. And the next logical outcome is going to be that all the story points have to equal hours so that they're consistent across the organization so that you're calculating cost per hour. And then it's like, what did we just do? Like how much energy and effort did we just spend trying to square peg round hold this just to end up back at 
uh, a cost per hour anyway. I, I, I try to ask, what would you do with that metric? In other words, if what would you do yeah. if the cost for story point was $8? Or what would you do if this team had a cost for story point of $6 and this team had a cost for story point of $4? Tell me how your behavior would change based on that metric. And yeah. when, when the results sound ridiculous coming out of their mouths, then maybe you can start backing up to do do we need to do that? If it's not, if it's being used for the bad things, then that behavior, it's not bad behavior. It's expected behavior. You want me to double my velocity? Done. I've told you the people at Chevron, this- I, I started this at Chevron. I told them, because they were starting to go down that path. I said, look, you have hired very, very start, smart people who solve really hard problems every day. Gaming this story point system is trivial for them. It, 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 it will take them five minutes and they'll get back to their real work. So don't do it. We're, we're, we're kind of circling around story points right now, but I think that that does that does build into the whole EVM thing. Because again, what we're really talking about is is taking taking uh, something that uh, something that an ordinal measure, not a nominal measure, and uh, and using it to do math. And then taking averages to come up with deterministic forecast of things, and then saying, and we're doing this all upfront without knowing what the future looks like, and then halfway through going, why is the deterministic forecast that we did using averages on a nominal measure wrong? If anyone's taken math to any degree, will uh, they will tell you about fifty things that are wrong with all of that? And somehow we were able to convince the government that this was a good thing to do. And I think it's worse than that it, because the conversation isn't why is our estimate wrong? It is why is our performance so subpar? What's right. wrong with our teams? Do you need more people? Did we hire yeah. the wrong people? Instead of going, huh, maybe maybe our estimate and forecasting is the problem. Well, and what was our cost to get that, right? So all of that that you just said is expensive, time-consuming. Um, we're pulling people away from doing the work to deliver, to try to spend all this time defining the work, estimating the work, coming up with the story point values to come up with that cost and budget and think that they have confidence in it, you know, and try to get everybody on board with it. Um, how much did we sink in that than to also try to hold everybody to it and know that it's probably inaccurate in the first place? I love I love that sorry Ben I was I love the colleagues asking the cost of the cost of story point. Well, yeah. it's it's not only that it's now you have a barrier to change. It's we spent so much time creating those yeah. requirements up front. We spent so much time doing the work breakdown structure and the critical paths and you know all this stuff that we now actually put up barriers to make the changes. You know we put up the barriers to create change control boards. Why? Well, because change is bad. And and and, and again, in that in that software bridge to agility book, uh, the, it, the, the thing that has stuck out from the first time I read it was you never know less about a project than at the beginning. So so if that's true, then why would you build a system that puts sand in the gears of making changes? But I think I think that's that's where that that is why this is such an interesting topic for me at least, because you don't know what this thing is going to look like. It 
is the very reason there is so much risk involved. And when you have so much money involved, <laughs> the risk has a large impact as well. So I do not blame people who try to come up with something to mitigate the risk. Unfortunately, though, our foundations were on the wrong thing. Our foundations were in figuring out how many hours have we put in and how many hours did we expect to put in, as opposed to how much value have we delivered? Yes. And it, what struck me so strange about the 32, you know, metrics about around earned value management is value doesn't really show up. It's about the passage of time, the expenditure of money and tracking against the plan made when we knew the least. Um, how can that be meaningful to the decision makers? I don't. Uh, uh, it's a mystery to me. So if, if, if we take this all the way back, let's say there is this huge project that's going to last five years. That, that's what we're bidding on. That's what's been discussed here. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay $500 million, whatever that's what the case is. So how do we make sure that the contractor gets enough money so they can keep pace that, and, and, and the, the purchaser, which is usually the government, is actually getting the value they need out of it? I mean, that, that's the basic problem we're trying to solve. Uh, how, how how can I'm taking over the role of host right now? Actually, how can EVM help us help us solve that, or how can Agile, for that matter, help us solve that problem if EVM is not effective enough? Well, I mean, uh, sorry, Colleen, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, part of it is to try to get Agile contracts, right? I mean, the benefit to that would be enormous. And by the way, the government understands it. I think, Andy, you posted a link to the NDIA report. And the thrust of it is the way we acquire our acquisition strategy is horrible. The way things work now and the way we traditionally acquire software, hardware, whatever, isn't working. And we need, we think agility is, is a way to get around that. So um, if, if you can build in those ways of looking at getting to the right stuff. When, when I first started talking to traditional project managers, traditional product people about trying to instill agility into what we're doing, well, they would say, well, then how am I going to know what I'm getting and when I'm going to get it, right? So the, the snarky question is, well, how's that worked for you so far? Right, because because it hasn't. But but the really powerful question to ask them is, do you ever get do you get smarter? Right, you ever meet a product person who ever said no to that question? Say, well, if you get smarter, would you be interested in a way of producing the value in a way that mitigates the disruption by what you've learned? Right, we're not talking Scrum, we're not talking Agile, we're just talking. Would it make sense to do that? You know, three months down the line, you find out what a competitor is doing. Four months down the line from a focus group, you find out a, a feature that you want that people don't, don't want. Wouldn't it be beneficial to create a system where making that pivot uh, has as little cost as possible, as opposed to creating mechanisms and, and control boards that actually try to dissuade you from making changes? Yeah. Ben, you mentioned the report, and I'll, I'll share it in the show notes. So NDIA is National Defense Industrial Association, and they have an integrated project management division. And in 2021, they put out a paper called uh, A Guide to Managing Programs Using, our favorite word, Predictive Measures. 
which to me seems like the great emulsifier, right? Um, and and it is a long, lengthy, several hundred page document um, <laughs> filled with three pages of acronyms at the front so that you understand what they're talking about. But there was a couple of things that they introduced that seemed like hope, uh, where, where they talk about schedule. Uh, they, they talk about establishing a, a, a new metric. I don't know if they're removing one of the 32 or adding a 33rd. Baseline execution index. It's a measure of demonstrated schedule performance using task counts. Getting away from this, this mythical story point estimate, right? Um, they introduced a, a, a people staffing component to look at critical skills of key personnel and churn. Like, holy crap, that's that is a useful metric, a very leading indicator. Um, critical resource multiplexing metrics, which means how many people are on multiple projects, uh, three hundred percent optimized, right? Uh, and then they they introduced, and you're gonna love this one, Pratik. The Schedule Risk Man Assessment, uh, SRA, uses Monte Carlo simulation to predict probability of meeting a project's completion target or hitting any key event. So let's, let's unpack this whole idea of using historical data to predict or forecast the future. And the second piece is, how do you start when you have no historical data? Yeah, I'm like, who's going, Pratik? Um, well, I'll I'll take the first part there. I mean, the task thing's kind of interesting to me because in some ways it's throughput, right? I mean, what are we calling a task? I think there that kind of goes back to like how we're breaking our work down from the beginning. So there's there's a lot of uh like loose ends there, but tasks could be throughput. And if we're looking at how many tasks we've completed in the past. And using that as our benchmark, we can start to model that out and say, how many tasks can we complete in the future? Um, you know, I think you said this earlier, Andy, it's funny, it's called um, uh, earned value measurement because it's not value that we're tracking though. And so you still have the complexity that you are forecasting how many things you can get done in a certain amount of time, or maybe, um, when a certain count of tasks might get completed, but they, if they're not the right tasks, we still can't guarantee that value. So um, there, there's a separate, like, that's a separate, a whole separate podcast. Um, but Pratik, you take the one on data. If you don't have any data, how would you yeah, start? No, I, I would even, let, let's start, sorry, Colleen, I'm gonna come to it after a little <laughs> bit of thing. Uh, to, to, to begin with, here's, here's the fun part of it you will almost never have the right data to say, let's say it's a five-year project, to be able to, to to be able to answer that question. What is the risk involved in the five-year project? I, I don't care how much data you have, you will never be able to answer that. There's no way situations and conditions are gonna stay stable long enough. The best we can do is do shorter term forecasts. And that's where uh, what Colleen was talking about earlier of how do we break this thing down? This thing, five-year thing, is if it's worth $20 million, what are the one to $2 million chunks of it that we can accomplish? What is what is feature one that we can accomplish? And when we deliver you feature one, you pay us a million dollars. What's, what's feature two that we can accomplish? 
If you think that's more important than other features, pay us $3 million for that. Can we actually do that instead? Can we first break this down? Now that we've broken it, broken it down, now we can talk about, okay, in the short term, it looks like in a month, I can produce about two features with an 80% confidence. I ran this thing called Monte Carlo simulation that does all these magical things in the background, which it doesn't, it's very simple. And it told me I have an 80% confidence of getting enough work done to deliver the first two features, features within a month. Let's go with that. And if I don't make it by that time, here's the, I'll, I'll, I'll take a penalty of X amount. If I get it done before that, great, we'll move on to the next one. That's where probabilistic forecasting can come in and start helping this thing. Let's break this down to shorter term forecasts. Now further, if you don't have data, this is the most beautiful thing for me of late. This was like a revelation that happened to me two months ago as I was talking to some developers. Everyone's into AI and machine learning all the time. Monte Carlo is literally machine learning if you keep doing continuous forecasting. As you get work done, you add it to the model. You get work done, you add it to the model. Even if you don't have data, as you get work done, you start putting it in the model, the model starts learning and giving you better, gives you better and better predictions, mm -hmm. which essentially means you get better predictions by actually getting the work done. Not by sitting around talking about the work, but by actually getting the work done. So that's my rant. And this kind of leads a little into the thread that I didn't, I, I, I didn't close the parenthesis on this idea of agile contracting, which is instead of the five-year project, let's put the goals that we want, but pick the first two. And then as we get closer, we'll start incrementally deciding what's the next thing to do because those things may change. And wouldn't you be happier? There's a, 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 a we were doing software as a service for car dealerships and uh, a major car manufacturer came in and said they wanted websites to to go to their uh their dealerships and they had 50 features they wanted on it and we said that's about six months and whether it was six months or not wasn't the important thing the the the, the interesting thing would have been of those 50 i bet there were the you know the pareto 10 of those were 80 percent of what they wanted so why didn't we structure the contract to say we'll do those first 10 at the beginning, and then we'll do the other stuff. Instead of saying we'll be done with the contract in six months with these 50 things, let's break it down into these smaller elements, and then we'll maybe change those things that are in those other elements. And I think that goes particularly to what you were just saying about making the small chunks and learning as you go along. What's interesting though is Andy, you have shared something, you shared like a slide deck from one of, one of these researchers that we were talking about. And in the middle of it, somewhere like around slide 97 out of the 200 slides that were in there, uh, there was a quote from someone from the government of saying, uh, we usually need about 75% of what we ask for, which can be done in two months, as opposed to the 100% that we wait for five years for. So not only as a contractor, I can deliver you value faster, I could probably move on to more valuable contracts myself by having delivered you the, the greatest part of the value. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I don't know why we're not doing more of that. Now I'm working on a hardware project and it's a little different there because we've we've put this module together and 90% of it works. The, the 
transmit function isn't working, but the other 90% is working. Now we're back to that earned value. It's it's not working. It's hard to break some things. It's hard to break down into smaller components. And that's the uh, opportunity that we're working with now of trying to apply some of these ideas to uh, pure hardware play. Yeah. It... Yeah. Like what's, what's the value of a prototype? If I give you a prototype, would you give me 20% of what we talked about? Uh, well, what, yeah. Yeah, how do you quantify and how do you quantify the risk reduction mm -hmm. by by doing that? You know, yep. yeah, and that's I think getting to the heart of the of why the value isn't really part of the EVM equations is it's very hard to quantify. It's easy to check a box if something's done. It's not easy to tell how much value that added. Yeah, until you they could do it with story points. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Right. No, it, you made me think of something too, Pratik, that's kind of interesting when, you know, Pratik's, I feel like Pratik, your real superpower is running Monte Carlos on things that people don't think you can run a Monte Carlo on, in my opinion. But I think, you know, it's it's interesting thinking about how we tie this all back to budget, because I think that's where a lot of the driver for this, these activities come from, right, is we need a way to budget these things and understand how much we've used this much budget. We have, you know, we're 80% complete. Do we have 20% of the budget left to keep going? And it's interesting when you think about um, what you were, you know, when we were talking about the task side of things and throughput count, and, and you were talking about collecting the data, um, there's also an opportunity there, you know, if you know your run rate, what's our cost to for this, for a team, for a program, for a portfolio, what's our run rate for a month for this team to show up and work, right? And then we can also do a Monte Carlo to say, how many features does this team, how, how much have we done and how much are we doing in the future? And you can start to associate your budget and your cost of delivering those things against your run rate. And that feels far more accurate to me than trying to figure out cost per story point and then sync all that upfront time estimating, right? That should get more accurate over time. Like you were saying, Pratik, as more things get completed, I can actually start to say, here's how much it costs for us to deliver this many things in this period of time, instead of trying to do it on the front end. I think you're onto something there because you know the run rate and right. you know the throughput. And if you're off schedule, you have a couple of levers to pull. The last one is add more people. Um, the, the first one is look for waste in the system and, and get that out. And so a lot of the core flow metrics will expose that for you. None of the traditional metrics will. Yeah, I do, do want to do a yes and to what Colleen was saying. The other thing you need is, I think, Andy, you had mentioned it, that they had they were adding this, the, the focus. Like, how is this the only project we're focused on? Is this the only thing that this team is working on? If they're working on multiple well, our run rate is not really helping us. We have to figure out what run rate is going here or there. Obviously, we all know the answer. Focus on one thing. But uh, what what's interesting about that for me, from from a pure economics perspective, is now we can say things like dedicating our complete run rate to this thing is going to bring us this much money as the contractor. Meanwhile, dedicating it to this is going to bring us this much money. So I can start doing that economic uh, 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 calculation of I have limited resources. 
what brings me better what brings me better return on this on this investment yeah another great lens and i'm still i'm still struggling with the why do i care what percentage of the budget is gone or what percentage of the work is done i i mean i really care looking forward uh what's my run rate what's the work left and how much then does that mean it's going to cost me and how much of my budget does my budget cover that and even with multitasking teams on different people on different teams the the through the, the the throughput is the throughput you know if there's inefficiencies built in that because you're multitasking and you're not getting 25% of your time on all four teams whatever that team is getting done is getting done with whatever effective percentage of your time you're working on that so it may not be as um, as tricky as as it might seem at first well, for me, for me, it became an int- a more interesting conversation in terms of uh, if my run rate is two dollars a month, one dollar a month. Let's make it simpler. I don't know why I'm making it more complicated. One dollar a month, um, and Project A brings me a dollar twenty-five. Project B brings me a dollar fifty. Now I can decide. Uh, I can get Project A done in X amount of time. But I can kind of start saying when I pull the next item. Which item, which project do I pull it from? And and how am I splitting my time between these two? And I can charge A for the amount of work I did for A and B for the amount of work I did for B. Yeah, well, I think just... you take that a step further too from a startup perspective. I, you know, I've lived through this recently <laughs> on the, the startup side of things. You've got a fixed amount of money in the bank account. And, and if you're trying to deliver certain features and that money is dwindling, um, you know how much run rate you have before you have to pull the plug. And so I think that that's another way to think about it is I've got $100,000 in the bank. My run rate's 20 grand a month. Um, I'm going to run out of money at some point here. So it's almost like you're using your forecasting. You're going to say, I'm going to run out of money. There's a <laughs> there's a 100% chance I'm going to run out of money <laughs> um, on, you know, on September 30th. Um, and so what's the, how do I prioritize the work understanding that this is how much time I have left? How many features can I get done by that date? Or how many stories can I get done by that date? Um, so you're almost, you know, I think, and, and, and then it's like, maybe it's not one feature. Um, maybe it's, I have 30 stories. And like you said, 10 are from this feature and 20 are from this feature, but you're, you're almost flipping it backwards to say, how, how do you use that budget or the remaining runway to figure out your end date for your Monte Carlo. Yeah, that's yeah, I, a whole nother angle. And, you know, we're coming up on the end of time. We've got three more shows in here somewhere. Um, <laughs> EVM, in in my read, it was a, uh, sub, not, not the supplier, but the purchaser's tool, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a defensive mix. So oh, I've got this, 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 all these things come together. There's, you know, five $20 million contracts. Who's screwing up? How am I going to track as a government agency that's doing this purchasing? Who's a risk and who isn't? Uh, you've looked at it from another point of view as a supplier or as the vendor of these services. Um, what can we take from it? Um, closing thoughts before we wrap up. Anything you'd like to add? I, I, I'd like the, the part of the discussion to focus on the outcomes over outputs. And you have these 32... You have these 32 equations that are outputs. What are the outcomes you expect to use from them? 
And if we focus on when am I going to get what I want to get and how much is it going to cost me from this point forward, I think we have a much better chance of using uh, more meaningful metrics to get those answers. <laughs> sure. Uh, for, for me, it's, it's, it's again, it comes down to risk management. I, as the, 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 the purchaser, want to manage risk to make sure my most important stuff gets done. So I can, instead of giving you a five-year thing, can I just give you a one-month thing? And, and on the other hand, as the provider, I want to manage risk because I don't want to promise you a five-year thing and then in two months from now know that there's no way that's going to happen and still get paid for the things that I already delivered. So I think if we if we look at this from the lens of risk management, and that's purely what this is for, I think we can reframe this quite a bit mm. to, to work for both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, obviously, I'm a fan, too, of the risk management approach to this. I think it changes the conversation and, and gets more skin in the game. So it's less it's less uh, like this is a done deal and this is what we're tracking to forever. Um, I think the other part there is um, the, the learning, small bets and learning. So that's how you're actually figuring out if you're getting the value that you planned on instead of waiting five years and $20 million later to find out it's the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all, and thank you to listening audience if you've stuck this long um, and you enjoyed this episode, give us a like, drop some comments down below. If this is your first time tuning in, please subscribe and you'll get the next one uh, as a notification. And if you want to join the conversation, share your stories about uh, making and keeping promises and limiting your risk, join us on the Discord server. I see the show notes for details how to get there. And finally, support from listeners just like you and you and you uh, help us cover our hosting and production costs. See the show notes for how you can become a patron and get some cool swag in the mail. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Popcorn. <laughs>